Well, we know that the union work rules are what everything is about. It's the same case with Starbucks, too. If you can't tell your employees when they work, then you're really not able to have much of an ability to be able to uh, move product or move coffee. And I think the people, the unions will be in charge of time that you need to work. And that would be dreadful for, uh, very dreadful for Andy Jassy. And that's just a U.S. picture, right? Yeah. They got Europe to I mean, think look, about as well. You know, look, one of the problems was, you know, Starbucks does indeed have unionized places in the ones that they franchise. But if you can't control the work rules, no one wants to work certain shifts. So you can just say, listen, I'm not going to work that shift. And Amazon would not be able to say, yes, you must work it. So that's what at stake with union is, is time that you have to work. So what did we just hear, Luke? <laughs> that was Jim Cramer on... Uh, he's he's the cash man. <laughs> That's right. He's the host of uh, Mad Money. He's known, among other things, for the so-called rant heard around the world, which was at least the, the moment that the phrase Tea Party was uh, popularized. He'll buy your gold. He'll buy your jewelry <laughs> for big money. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so obviously Cramer there was talking about the recent victory of the Amazon where Workers at this Staten Island facility. I mean, of course, we, we had to talk about this right off the top. I mean, what can you even say? One of the most significant victories for labor in decades in the United States. I mean, a really inspiring thing to see. A lot of the mainstream commentary, uh, at least that I saw leading up to this vote, uh, was that not only were they going to lose, but that uh, it was actually a, a very high risk and kind of almost an irresponsible thing for them to even try. I mean, considering what these folks were up against, an absolutely extraordinary victory. Uh, victory. I had the chance recently to look at a report about how NLRB elections happen, so union elections, the conditions under which they happen, and just the extent of what workers are up against when they try to form a union, especially if they're employed by a large corporation. I mean, these are conditions that if they prevailed in any actual election, you know, if if the things that are allowed to happen in union elections happened in a presidential election or something, absolutely nobody would consider the results even remotely legitimate. I just want to read a little bit from the report here. Unfortunately, anti-union intimidation tactics have come to define a growing share of the auto industry. This is from a section of the report that deals heavily with Tesla and also Nissan. At Tesla, for instance, the labor board recently concluded that the company committed a series of violations, including illegally firing one union supporter and disciplining another because of their union activity, threatening employees with a loss of stock options if they joined a union, restricting employees from speaking with the media, coercively interrogating union supporters, and barring employees from distributing union information to their co-workers. So too, the CEO at Foyu Glass, the country's largest producer of automobile glass, was filmed openly reporting to the firm's chairman that he had fired employees who had tried to organize a union. Now, to get back to Amazon here, and of course, there's a, a redo of, of the vote at the Bessemer facility, which was thrown out because of all the stuff Amazon did. But just to give you a sense of the kinds of things uh, Amazon is willing to do, and they spent millions of dollars on consultants, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole lucrative industry of union avoidance that's used by large companies uh, and bosses in these situations. But so trying to discourage workers in Bessemer from unionizing last year, the company held mandated anti-union meetings. Uh, So these were meetings that employees were forced to attend where they were bombarded with propaganda about how bad unions are. Amazon pressured the USPS uh, to install a special box for, I guess, the ballots so that workers could be surveilled and so that they would feel surveilled. They even changed the timing of local traffic lights 
so that organizers, labor organizers would be disadvantaged. I mean, that's the the lengths they were willing to go. And there's a couple more things I want to say here before we move on. But to return to the the Jim Cramer clip, I mean, what I love about moments like this, I mean, I think a, a labor victory like this really brings to the surface a kind of class consciousness, not only in the obvious sense that working class consciousness that comes out of this, but there's also a, a type of really insidious capitalist class consciousness that comes out of it as well. And that's what you really hear in that Jim Cramer clip. I mean, the popular face, the public face, uh, the public facing rhetoric of the neoliberal revolution in the United States of, of Reaganism, you know, the public face of uh, pro-capitalist sentiment in general has always been kind of universalist, right? It's always about how, well, this is the system that's going to deliver for everybody. This is the system that's going to guarantee you individual freedom, whereas all these uh, all these dangerous experiments with the welfare state and, you know, socialism, etc., those destroy individual creativity. They destroy your freedom. Oh, what? You want bureaucrats creating death panels to decide whether you can see a doctor, et cetera, et cetera. But in moments like this, you get the more distilled kind of capitalist class consciousness come out. I mean, what Jim Cramer is basically saying there is that what he fears the most is workers being able to, is workers having power, right? Is workers being able to determine the conditions, having any say in determining the conditions under which they work. I mean, he's basically saying that this whole system depends on brutal exploitation and kind of uh, the workplace being an unchecked dictatorship in which, you know, managers are able to tell people when to work and for how much. And if they don't like it, they don't really have a choice. So in that sense, you know, I think moments like this can be very clarifying. And hopefully this is just the first of many similar victories uh, in the near future. There is one other point I want to make about this, because strikingly, you know, a pretty small uh, number of Democratic politicians were were quick to respond to this. At my last count, there were something like seven Democratic senators uh, who'd responded to this, you know, two of them being the senators from New York, another one being Bernie Sanders, I think Elizabeth Warren as well. I believe Sherrod Brown was another. In any case, it was a relatively small percentage at my last count. And I just wanted to read this tweet by Mike Casca, who's uh, Bernie Sanders, director of communications and deputy chief of staff. He says, why won't the Democratic Party do more to stand against Amazon's greed? Because Amazon's political unit is run by Obama's former press secretary <laughs> and the company pays one of the party's most influential consulting firms. So I believe the firm he's talking about, which I'm going to come to in a second, is also the one that Jen Psaki uh, used to work for. So this is Biden's outgoing press secretary who's about to take up what I can only assume will be a very lucrative gig talking nonsense at MSNBC. But I want to read here from uh, this article, Amazon hired an influential Democratic pollster to fight Staten Island Union Drive. Amazon tapped an influential consulting and polling firm with close ties to Democratic political groups to help the company thwart a critical unionization effort at a Staten Island, New York warehouse, CNBC has learned. Global Strategy Group, which served as a polling partner for a pro-Biden super PAC ahead of the 2020 election, has been working with Amazon since at least late last year to produce anti-union materials. Employees at the Fulfillment Center, known as JFK8, began casting their ballots Friday. Amazon has fought aggressive to beat back unionization efforts on Staten Island, just as it has in Bessemer, Alabama, where workers just concluded a second union vote after the initial one failed last year. At JFK 8, Amazon's largest warehouse in New York City and three other facilities on Staten Island, Global Strategy Group has put together videos featuring Amazon managers and executives and has distributed flyers to staffers. Amazon has delivered anti-union presentations that workers have been required to sit through at meetings, 
which are often attended by a representative from Global Strategy Group, according to a person familiar with the matter. Working for Amazon in anti-union capacity could pose a problem for GSG because of its close affiliation with the Democratic Party, which has traditionally been an advocate for labor unions, if you, if you say so. Uh, the firm even conducted polling for New York Attorney General Letitia James, an Amazon critic who accused the company of unlawfully firing Christian Smalls, now the president of ALU. That's the Amazon Labor Union. GSG also provided polling services for a branch of the Service Employees International Union, one of the largest labor unions in the country. According to GSG's website, the firm has, quote, led polling for dozens of winning campaigns and political organizations in 2018 and 2020 to secure today's Democratic majority in the U.S. House of Representatives and U.S. Senate. It was the polling partner for Priorities USA, a super PAC that backed President Joe Biden and has worked for Democratic Senators Kirsten Gillibrand, Joe Manchin, and Ed Markey, its website says. GSG has long been a well-known name on Capitol Hill and a decade ago employed Jen Psaki, who's now Biden's White House press secretary. Anyway, this story is instructive of many things, but definitely something that really comes out here is just the extent to which, you know, the Democratic Party has this deeply embedded consultant class that, you know, is kind of work for hire. So they'll work for, you know, a relatively progressive Democratic politician. They'll work for Joe Manchin. They'll work for SEIU. But at the end of the day, you know, they're a conservative institution, just like the Democratic Party, and they're siding with Amazon to fight labor. I don't know if he's tweeted yet. I saw Alex Perrine tweet at Jay Carney and just saying, you know, this Obama's former press secretary, who's now Amazon's PR flack, and just said, you know, Jay Carney, will you you come out of hiding so that we can all dunk on you? But I mean, it is it is so instructive, the trajectory, the direction of travel from change we can believe in in 2008 to where some of the Obama knots ended up. I mean, literally, they're just strewn throughout corporate America. Robert Gibbs, another former Obama press secretary, went and became a vice president, I think, at McDonald's, which has obviously lobbied pretty hard against raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. You know, you know, you got Jay Carney literally working to do, you know, union avoidance at the country's second largest employer. The list goes on and on to say nothing about what Obama himself is doing. Anyways, you often say I'm not crescendoing to any, uh, you know, major point here, except uh, this is a really significant labor victory, deeply inspiring to see uh, the Democratic Party sucks, workers of the world unite. I'll tell you what I think. I think outmoded labor laws are keeping us from properly exploiting an untapped resource, which is children. <laughs> think about it. <laughs> They're small. They can crawl into areas that adults can't crawl into. Their little hands can untangle things that big adult hands can't. But 100 years ago, a bunch of uh, prudes and scolds decided to say, children can't work. Children can't work. Well, uh, the British Empire was built into the greatest empire the world has ever known on the back of good, hard work by children. And uh, what are they doing now? You know what they're doing? They're on their damn iPhones. They're taking, they're taking critical race theory classes. And and I say, put them to work. <laughs> well, our goal on Michael and us has always been like the greatest shows out there, you know, Crossfire, etc. Our goal has always been to provide you with both sides of the story. So there you go. Listen, Luke, if you call me a crypto fascist one more time, I'll sock you in the goddamn jaw and you'll stay plastered. <laughs> Me, the slovenly liberal, Will, the fastidious conservative, <laughs> committed to order and fiscal rectitude. The only two political persuasions there are. There you have it, folks. Take Well, uh, we do have a movie to talk about later on this episode, but I know that Luke, uh, speaking of conservatives, is eager to tell you all about a figure of uh, great import. 
uh, somebody who I myself am only vaguely aware of, who is Pierre Polyev. Okay. So uh, on a recent episode, I talked about the seismic political event that is shaking things up in Canada. Everyone's paying attention to it. Everyone's glued to it. I'm talking about the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race, an event which obviously I'm kidding, absolutely nobody uh, except for, you know, people who are are paid to and uh, freaks like myself are paying any attention to. Pierre Polyev is the front runner in the race uh, as things stand. He has the backing of, last time I checked, something like a third of the Conservative caucus in Parliament. Uh, He's got the backing of Andrew Scheer, who's the former leader of the Conservative Party, uh, a number of party grandees, John Baird, the former foreign minister, uh, a bunch of people like that. Now, I wanted to talk about him not because he is even remotely interesting. Uh, Suffice it to say, the Conservative Party of Canada is not interesting, even by the standards of kind of right-wing institutions, you know, mainstream right-wing institutions. But the leadership race, so far anyway, is nonetheless a quite instructive case study. It has been so far into, I think, how bad parts of the media are at discussing right-wing politics, and particularly parts of the Canadian media. I want to take us back a little bit to the leadership race that happened in 2017 to replace Stephen Harper, who of course was defeated in the 2015 federal election. Now, there were two candidates in that race who both prompted comparisons to Donald Trump. Both of them did uh, extremely poorly, uh, despite a a ton of visibility, and basically no one has thought about either of them since. Uh, One of those figures was Kevin O'Leary, who some of you might know from uh, Dragon's Den. It never stopped being funny to me that he would be referred to, you know, in news articles and stuff as former Dragon Kevin O'Leary, as if that's like an office. So Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank, you know, he ran, you know, got comparisons to Donald Trump uh, for no other reason than, hey, here's a rich guy who's, you know, running for office. Uh, It's Canada. So what are we going to do? Have our own reference points? No, we need to pluck them from the United States. Trump is a thing that's happening right now where everyone's very traumatized by it. So maybe this is our Trump. Well, I was working for a uh, Canada-based investigative outlet at the time, and I remember it being extremely easy to hone in on the fact that Kevin O'Leary had spent something like, you know, half of the campaign at a certain point, I think a few months in, not even in Canada. I mean, he was... He was barely trying. I mean, it, re- it really was the actual version of what people told themselves Donald Trump was doing in the summer of 2015 or whatever. You know, it was actually just a stupid publicity stunt. And, uh, you know, he had no chance of winning. The more interesting case in some ways was the case of Kelly Leach, who is a former uh, minister of labor, minister of a few other things. Dr. Kelly Leach to her friends and also pretty much any interlocutor she encountered during that race. Uh, there are some pretty amazing clips of her telling you know, conservative activists and stuff that she doesn't need to justify her policy positions because she has 21 letters after her last name and stuff. Anyway, Kelly Leach at one point started putting exclamation marks at the end of her tweets. She tweeted about how we need to drain the canal, a a play on drain the swamp, except referring rather provincially to the Rideau Canal in Ottawa. This earned her a cover story on McLean's magazine, one of the kind of major general interest magazines in Canada, with a headline that was something like, how Kelly Kelly Leach declared war against elites and set off a culture war. Now, again, very easy to go through Kelly Leach's donors and find, you know, several (laughs) billionaires from my recollection, quite a few people who you could definitely call elites, you know, represented among her donors. But what was so amazing about this is that Kelly Leach very quickly earned the uh, populist label. And incidentally, she finished in something like seventh or something. I mean, just a totally distant finish. Didn't catch fire at all, despite tons of media coverage. But it was striking because, again, people were so keen to shoehorn the story and 
into some kind of prefigured narrative like, oh, there's this very ill-defined and, and sinister thing called populism uh, that's happening all, over, all around the globe. It's happened in the United States. We got to have a version of it here. And apparently uh, it consists of, you know, tapping into the id of the feral masses by, you know, putting exclamation marks at the end of your tweets and saying, drain the canal and stuff like that. Anyway, it was especially funny because, as I said, Kelly Leach was about as elitist in her outward presentation as you could possibly imagine. I want to just drop in a clip here. This was edited together by my friend Luke Lebrun, uh, the editor of the Press Progress website where I used to work. This was Kelly Leach at a leadership debate, I believe, held at the Manning Conference when she was running for the Conservative Party leadership. And this is the kind of performance that somehow allowed her to earn the populist mantle from Canada's media. I've spent a significant portion of my professional career at the Ivy School of Business. I've been publishing in this area, hmm, let's see, since hmm, 2002. You may have come forward with a plan from someone else just recently, but I'm published on this. The Health Innovation Center at the Ivy School of Business is actually top of its class internationally. Please feel free, read anything I've published, because I've been ahead of the curve. Chris Alexander, one minute. Thanks, Tom. I also disagree with Kelly. I think uh, the problems are not too difficult for mere mortals uh, to understand. <laughs> now, I... Anyway, I think it's quite illustrative of how vague the consensus definition of populism is that a, a figure who talks that way and is just so kind of unbearably awkward in their delivery could be seen by, you know, the media in Canada or anywhere else as some kind of dangerous populist. Now, I want to turn to uh, Pierre Polyev, who is, as I said, the current front runner in the Conservative Party leadership race and a guy who is already being described as a right wing populist. Now, I do think Pierre Polyev is a more talented politician than someone like Kelly Leach. But there are two points I want to make about him that, again, I think seriously call into question this, you know, ubiquitous use of the populist frame, which uh, just now seems to be ambient in any kind of conversation about the political right. Pierre Polyev has been endorsed by uh, at least one former leader of the Conservative Party. He has the endorsement uh, and the backing of, as I said last time I checked, something like a third or more than a third of the sitting Tory caucus. He has been been a conservative member of parliament throughout the Harper era. He's a former cabinet minister. So if we're making comparisons to Trump, I mean, Trump doesn't tick any of those boxes. I mean, you could say Trump was a billionaire and a fake populist. Of course, that's true. But he absolutely was an outsider in that he was running against the existing Republican machinery. And in the sense that a big part of his origin story as a candidate had to do with, you know, blowing past and, you know, being very cruel to these figures like Jeb Bush, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, etc. So that's one thing I want to say about Polyev. The other thing I want to say is that he reminds me so much of campus conservatives that I met back when I was at U of T. He's into all this stuff, which frankly, like doesn't strike me as populist at all. Like one of his big things is cryptocurrency. He had a clip the other day or, you know, he had this little uh, campaign event or something where the gag was he was buying shawarma with Bitcoin. Now you can call that shit whatever you want, but I don't think there's anything populist about it. Well, it's populist because it's uh, liberating money from the controls of various uh, shadowy <laughs> figures, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, so monetary policy or whatever, like central banking, Maxime Bernier, another former 
former conservative cabinet minister who now leads the, uh, you know, the further right People's Party of Canada. When he was running for the Tory leadership back in the day, he was like going on campus radio stations, like libertarian, you know, radio shows in the United States and stuff, and talking about how we need to bring back the gold standard. His big thing before he became leader of the PPC was he was very passionate about deregulating Canada's dairy market, like deregulating the kind of set of rules and institutions that are collectively referred to as supply management in Canada. Like he was a market dogmatist for milk. And again, you can call that whatever you want, but I don't think that you can call something like that populism either. And there's no profound point to be made here, except that I think that after Trump, the word and the concept have sort of been beaten into oblivion, where now they're just a sort of shorthand for a lot about right-wing politics that's actually pretty mainstream, at least within the context of right-wing politics, uh, for one thing. And for another, a lot of stuff which I don't think really has broad appeal at all. And if something doesn't have broad appeal, if it's not actually trying to tap into some kind of latent anti-elite or anti-establishment sentiment, I don't really think you can call it populist. I mean, if people follow Polyev, they'll know that, you know, he aligned himself pretty closely with the Freedom Convoy. So I suppose that there's a little more of a conversation to be had there around that. But this is a thoroughly mainstream conservative politician. I don't think he's a populist. It'll be interesting to see if he wins what happens. My sense of Polyev is that he is more of an ideologue than his two predecessors, Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Scheer. Now, both of those guys did what you do to win a conservative party leadership race. If you're speaking to the conservative membership, you're going to be speaking to all kinds of people who believe in like vaccine conspiracy theories. They're angry about vaccine mandates. They're passionate about uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin and the liber liberatory potential of NFTs, whatever. There's a very influential social conservative current within the conservative party, which always has, a, you know, or, or in the last two uh, elections anyway, leadership elections has uh, been pretty instrumental in picking the leader. But guess what? Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole, the previous two leaders of the Conservative Party, both quite unsuccessful, both ousted very quickly after elections in which they were seen to underperform. They ran on the right and then immediately tried to transform themselves into kind of these boring, innocuous, unthreatening uh, sort of suburban dad candidates. Because the fact is, only a minority of Canadian voters share ideological ground with the Conservative Party, and particularly, you know, with the Conservative base and the kinds of people who vote in these leadership elections. So my instinct, and putting this on the record now, so later if I'm wrong, you can all make me eat my words, my instinct is that if Polyev does win and tries to, uh, you know, run the Conservative Party in this kind of ideological style, uh, I don't think he's going to be very successful. I don't think there's an appetite for this stuff. It's possible that a conservative populist, you know, somebody actually pursuing a populist strategy could be more successful in Canada. I don't think this guy is it. Neo-Tokyo is about to explode. We have a movie to talk about on this episode. This is another super delegate pick. Yes, we have a super delegate patron tier on patreon.com slash Michael and us uh, who uh, vote on potential episodes. This month, there was a tie in the voting. Uh, this is the second time a tie has happened. So we're going to be talking about both movies. On this episode, we'll be talking about the iconic, groundbreaking 1988 Japanese anime Akira. 
And on a future episode, we'll be discussing the Tom Clancy classic, The Hunt for Red October. Well, I'm looking forward to that one because I've actually never seen it. And uh, I mainly know Tom Clancy through, you know, video games and stuff like that. I feel like he's pretty uh, fruitful terrain for us and that that one's going to have been a long time coming. Anyway, Akira, you know it, you love it. It was the most expensive anime of its day. It was based on an 1,800-page manga, and I think it only covered a fraction of what was in that original publication, but there's still plenty here. I don't think anyone would leave this movie saying there wasn't enough plot. Uh, In the West, this movie was a crossover success at a time when, for a lot of people, Japanese animation just meant Speed Racer and nothing beyond that. And since then, I think it's become one of that small category of anime classics that run-of-the-mill movie buffs of all kind have seen. You know, it's up there with the Miyazaki movies and Grave of the Fireflies. Uh, By the way, I'm putting myself in that category because Japanese anime is something that I have no particular expertise in. Uh, Didn't really gravitate towards it as a child. Kind of just seen some of the canonical ones, but that's about it. How about you, Luke? Yeah, I'm pretty much in the same boat. You know, I've seen Akira a few times. I'm a big fan. I've seen all of Satoshi Kon's films. I'm a huge fan of those. Millennium Actress is a particular favorite of mine, though I think, you know, they're all great. Perfect Blue, Paprika, Tokyo Godfathers is really beautiful and heartfelt as well. The Studio Ghibli stuff, obviously great, although I don't think I've seen all of it. Akira, though, I feel like is sort of the zenith of of, of something anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, an, it's an absolutely beautiful mess of a film. Uh, it comes out of a real boom in anime in Japan in the 1980s. Beginning in the 80s and, and uh, going into the 1990s, there was a significant economic boom in Japan. And among the things that came out of this was a significant boom in the number of these films being made. So in the 1970s, according to one statistic I found, there were 49 anime feature films made. In the 1980s, that basically quadrupled. And Akira, in many ways, was the, the peak of that boom. It cost something like 10 times as much as what I think had the previous record for a budget um, for this type of film, which was Studio Ghibli's film Nausicaa. And it really does show in the look of the film. It had a much higher frame rate than these films had typically had. Animated at most, I think at most points, at 12 drawings a second. But I think in some cases, it's as many as 24 drawings a second. So it, it, it looks beautiful and it, it, it flows beautifully. As I said, it is a beautiful mess of the film. And as you mentioned, Will, it is based on a series of graphic novels by Katsuhiro Otomo, uh, who is actually still working on the manga when the film was made. I've only ever glanced at uh, this you know, eight-volume opus. As I understand it, uh, the film, which is a, a little over two hours long, basically contains, you know, the first half of the first volume of these kind of eight graphic novels uh, with some of the last volume thrown in. And as I said, uh, the series was not even finished. Uh, when it came out. I think it was completed about two years after the film came out. And so for that reason, I mean, it really is kind of a mess, uh, albeit a beautiful one. Uh, the second act in particular feels a bit overwrought, a bit truncated. It can be very difficult to follow at some points. Although to me, watching this again, uh, that didn't even really feel like a flaw. I feel like we've complained a lot on uh, this podcast about these sort of overwrought blockbusters that have sort of really nothing in them, but are these sort of grandiose titanics of 
movies, just four hours long, not a lot to discuss, uh, really pretentious, nothing to justify their production values or their length. This film is kind of the inverse of that. There is so much in here. There is so much alluded to uh, that leaves you wanting more. So much about the political dynamics, the social dynamics of this dystopian future city, Neo-Tokyo. It just leaves you wanting more and frankly makes you want to read the uh, graphic novel, which I'm not a, you know, a big reader of graphic novels, but uh, I probably will get to this one at some point. Really? Can I introduce you to a little character you might enjoy named Batman? Uh, <laughs> anyway. Well, I, I will say for the record, the only comics I've really read, I mean, if this if this even counts uh, in the same discussion is I read Tintin and I read Asterix growing up. I think I read a few Simpsons comics as well. Yeah, I mean, please, I don't want to hear anything about European comics. That's the, uh, <laughs> no thank you. But enough of that xenophobia. Uh, Akira is set in the distant future, 30 years from now in the year 2019. <laughs> in 1988, a atomic blast of some kind destroyed Tokyo. And out of that emerged a bizarro city place called Neo Tokyo or New Tokyo. The city's under martial law. It's kind of like in Metropolis where you've got a city of the haves and the have-nots and throughout the streets disaffected youth are all over. Uh, motorcycle gangs have emerged, disconnected from the city as it once was in its glory days. And the government of the city is this sort of alliance between the military, the private sector, and the scientific community. Yeah, and I love the way that the uh, the city is imagined. I love the way Neo-Tokyo is imagined so much. I mean, again, there's a lot that's alluded to and never fully developed, which in some ways is kind of frustrating, but it's so incredibly evocative, it almost doesn't really matter. I mean, the film opens, as you said, with this shot of something that certainly resembles an atomic blast. So immediately putting the film in kind of a long tradition of uh, post-Hiroshima, post-Nagasaki, Japanese films and popular culture. But right from the beginning of the film, we get at least a little bit of expertise position about what's going on in the city. We hear talk on the radio of political corruption, of, of labor unrest, of uh, high unemployment, of students fighting police, of roving gangs and, and crime that's out of control. One of the things I really appreciate in terms of how the city's imagined is that while it's true that Neo-Tokyo is clearly a very dysfunctional place, it's clear that a lot of the pre-World War III life has just kind of resumed as normal. You kind of see that all this very familiar Japanese consumer culture and stuff is just going on uh, as all of this is happening. You get the sense that there's a class of people amid this, this deep social and also kind of spiritual dysfunction. You know, there's a class of people that are just kind of like going out to restaurants and like doing whatever, uh, partaking in the consumer culture. You see a lot of billboards and things like that. Because capitalism is not incompatible with fascism. Yeah, absolutely. So in many ways, this is a kind of banal dystopia, uh, albeit a very frightening and dysfunctional one. And there are many different realities that can coexist. Uh, we see it in the society we live in right now. There are lots of people who are comfortable and lots of people who aren't comfortable. And among the uncomfortable people are two wayward boys Tetsuo and Kaneda. Kaneda is the protagonist of the piece. Tetsuo falls into a motorcycle accident. Almost immediately, he is taken by a shadowy governmental organization, and Kaneda spends much of the movie investigating Tetsuo's whereabouts. There are many other characters. One of them is named Takashi. He's this man-child figure. He looks like a really old little boy. He's what's called an esper, 
which is a person with telekinetic abilities. Not not a person, yeah. but a but a being of some kind. Yeah, Asper is an ESP. One of the reasons why Tetsuo has been abducted, we find out, is because he and Takashi and all Espers, it seems, have this kind of power that may have played a role in the destruction of the city 30 years ago, which was caused by another Esper, a mysterious figure known as Akira. So we see all these motorcycle gangs and then also uh, among the rabble are various resistance gangs. The most important character from these gangs is named Kei, who becomes an ally to Kaneda. And so very soon, Tetsuo becomes caught in this intersection between the government, the resistance, the motorcycle gangs. And, you know, at this point, the plot is quite convoluted. A number of warring factions. It's the kind of plot that you could imagine playing out in an eight-volume comic book series. Yeah, I mean, there's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Is also one of the most frustrating scenes in the movie, which is uh, when you get to see the city's executive council meeting. And as you said, you know, it's this kind of corporatist body that's made up of, you know, there's a member of parliament there. There's, you know, representatives from the military. The colonel, who's a major figure in the movie, is there. Also, figures from the kind of scientific uh, intelligentsia, scientific establishment, and just sort of various nameless bureaucrats. And basically, they can't agree on on anything. So the city may be governed by this sort of technocratic junta, but that hasn't made its governance any more efficient. And you can see that all of these people represent quite divergent interests and uh, they can't agree on anything. The scene only lasts a few minutes and it's followed shortly after by factions within the city government trying to arrest the colonel uh, after which, you know, he immediately stages a coup because, the, of course, the military, which uh, exerts a lot of the real power in the city, is uh, is loyal to him. So this is an example of the kind of great but somewhat frustrating scene you find in sort of the connective tissue in the middle of the film. You can see that there's just so much here and yet, you know, the film can't possibly develop at all within its, you know, two hour, four minute running time. I think this movie fits in quite comfortably with a number of future dystopia movies that were being released throughout the 80s. 1984 is an example. Brazil is an example. Blade Runner, I think to some degree, Tim Burton's Batman, where there are movies that imagine these crumbling urban centers that are like exaggerated versions of Manhattan, or in this case, Tokyo, versions of the city that would happen if certain regulations were were slipped away and all of the worst excesses of capitalism were allowed to flourish. And all of these movies, I think, are a little bit, I don't think incoherent is the right word, but I think they're movies that seem to be channeling just some spirit that's in the air and throwing a lot of images of decadence into a big stew uh, without one overarching point to it. Do you think there's something about this aesthetic of future dystopia movie that is unique or specific to the 1980s? Because I think there's a difference between, you know, the original Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, which looks a little bit more like the Apple Store. The future dystopias that we see in movies now, like I I mentioned Blade Runner 2049, but also a movie like Her, seem much more orderly, uh, much more beautiful in a sort of cold mechanical way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. I think I have a a very general uh, sketch of an answer I can give to that, which is I think uh, the 1980s can in some ways be characterized 
as a time of pessimism about the future, you know, they're, they're a decade when uh, a lot of the great post-war experiments seem to be dying and crumbling. You know, the, the Soviet Union, I suppose, not exactly a post-war experiment, but certainly a grand 20th century experiment. I mean, nobody really buys that this, you know, represents any kind of utopian vision for the future. But I mean, the same is true of kind of European social democracy, which is just absolutely crumbling. I suppose in the case of this film, you know, Japan is somewhat in its own category. It has its own culturally specific concerns, nationally specific concerns. But everything I just mentioned, I think, is quite distinct from the 1990s, which in some ways is also a time of pessimism. I mean, it's the the 90s is where we really see capitalist realism. And I'm going to use the phrase again, the end of history really kind of crystallized and consolidated into a kind of grand intellectual and, and political and economic and in many ways spiritual consensus. And there's a kind of optimism, at least uh, fleetingly, that's attached to that. But I think in the 1980s, that wasn't really being channeled in the same way. And the 80s are very interesting to discuss for that reason. I think in many ways, pessimism might be one theme, but I think, uh, and this is certainly true in this film, kind of disorientation uh, is another. I think you're right to characterize this film as non-didactic. I mean, I'm not sure if there's a, a grand point to be extracted from it, except for a kind of familiar point that runs through a lot of post-war Japanese culture and, and cinema in particular, you know, that comes right out of uh, 1945, you know, in which we discussed, uh, among other things, on our episode about Godzilla, you know, which is this concern about the Pandora's box, you know, that is technology. The technology associated with Akira is literally referred to by the colonel in, in the film, uh, as a Pandora's box, it's pretty clear that it's, you know, it was responsible in some way for the singularity that destroyed Tokyo. It's referred to elsewhere as the ultimate energy. And there's a, an interesting monologue delivered by one of the characters kind of uh, maybe about two thirds of the way through through the film, which indicates that, you know, it's really not just about telekinesis or, or anything like that. It really does represent or contain or articulate some kind of primal knowledge about the universe. This monologue, which is very striking, kind of characterizes it as something which predates human history. You know, it precedes, you know, the genomes that make up, you know, species on Earth. It's really something kind of outside of and beyond our understanding and uh, something we probably shouldn't meddle with. Godzilla is an interesting point of comparison because that original 1954 Godzilla was made in such close proximity to the atomic bombs dropping. It has this kind of raw power. This one, it's a generation removed from it, and so much of it is told from the point of view of characters who are a generation removed, even from the incident that birthed the world they're living in, this catastrophe in 1988. It opens with this very charged imagery that can't help but remind you of Hiroshima, but it doesn't feel like a living memory to the characters the way that it might have in, say, Godzilla. The sort of disaffected youth in the movie also feel just very disconnected from their government, from their country from their society and from history in general i mean they don't really exactly. seem to have there's there's not much of a sense of a past in this city or of the city as as some kind of you know continuation of something that's gone before because of course everything was was destroyed and in one of the the colonel's monologues there is kind of this sense given that there was perhaps uh, some kind of momentary optimism associated with reconstruction and rebirth and rebuilding but that that has long since disappeared amid all of the chaos and dysfunction 
So pardon if this is too much of a grafting of a contemporary narrative onto a 1988 cultural artifact, but I would imagine that many of the people who came of age after 9-11 or after the Iraq war or after the financial, especially after the financial crisis in 2008, which was the event that sort of guaranteed that so many young people are not going to have the same standard of living as their parents, an event that alienated many young people from the sort of, the sort of narrative of prosperity that even you and I grew up in when we were kids. There's something in the disconnect in this movie that feels contemporary to me in the world that I live in and the society that I live in. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why it's still such a pleasure to watch. It's so evocative of the particular way in which things have continued to get worse. I think a lot about that thing that Chapo's Felix Biederman said in that long read about The Sopranos uh, that was published last year in The New York Times, uh, about how The Sopranos captures a certain type of decline that we've experienced in recent decades. And it's not, as he put it, you know, the decline associated with running out of Rome as it's, you know, burnt to the ground. It's actually much more banal and incremental than that. It's having to stand for more and more hours out of the day. It's having less and less free time. It's having the things that make life worth living just kind of gradually chipped away so that you can expect them less and less. It's being able to rely or trust less and less, you know, the kind of prevailing post-war narrative that your generation is going to be at least slightly better off than the one that preceded it, etc. I feel like this film, despite being from 1988, channels all of that. And also, as you've been saying, this kind of overwhelming aura of kind of post-historicity, post-history that's, that's attached to that as well. Yeah, this reminds me of a conversation that I had in 2015 or 2016 with the great Canadian statesman Ken Dryden. Uh, a favorite of yours, Luke. Uh, who, who I inter- so, sorry. This is the this is the former NHL goalie and uh, MP for the Liberal Party of Canada, who I guess you interviewed. Yes, I interviewed. Oh, and also author of a book about hockey or something, right? Uh, they're all authors of books about hockey, but anyway, <laughs> you were interviewing him about his favorite uh, anime features. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he's a big fan of the show Love Hina. Uh, he was teaching some sort of course uh, that was about why society is actually good, and the thrust of his point that he made to me was, you know, there are a lot of people today who they look at society and they say that it's terrible. But but I say, look at these institutions we've built. Look at these great buildings we've built. Look at this infrastructure. Look at the governments that we've built. Look at the subway system. Look at everything that, that we have been able to build that has made society greater than it's ever been. You know, I, I'm paraphrasing, by the way. Please, Mr. Dryden, I'm sure you're listening. Don't don't uh, don't come after me with your, with your hordes of online brands. Rose. Uh, <laughs> how do you rebut this? Because uh, yes, I guess I guess these institutions are uh, uh, mighty and powerful, but like, and you know, you can feel a bit like one of the characters in this movie, like being in this horrible dystopian Tokyo and looking at the huge billboards and looking at the huge and looking at the big buildings that are telling you, actually, we've got society back on track. Streamlined Pictures presents a state-of-the-art adventure. Akira. By the way, I, you know, I've seen this movie uh, three or four times over the years. And one of the times I saw it was with my late parents. When I was back home after grad school and with nothing to do, my parents used to go to this thing that was at Laurier University, which was this weekly screening series of literary adaptations. And, you know, I, I saw two. So films. you saw you saw you saw Withering Heights, Emma and Akira. <laughs> well, I saw two films with them at it. Uh, one was The English Patient. Uh, they liked that one. 
I was I was less crazy about it. And the other one was Akira. And I really have to give my parents credit for this because they did go with an open mind. They they went to see it and they Yeah, but did they come out with one is the question. They hated it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this movie is incredibly violent. It's it's so violent. It's just like so, so dense. And so if I, I would imagine that if you're not predisposed to this sort of thing, it could perhaps be very unpleasant to watch like uh, Tetsuo turn into a gigantic fleshy beast at the end. <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> Tetsuo! <laughs> well, what can I say? I am partial to it. If you haven't seen it, folks, watch Akira. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> 